The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In June 2011, UK author Helen Bailey began writing a blog after the death of her husband as a way to deal with their grief and to provide comfort and a voice to the bereaved. She openly chronicled her journey following her loss, the ins and outs, the highs and lows, and eventually revealed that things were indeed getting better for her. She'd met someone, a man she called the gorgeous gray-haired widower. And then one day, the blog post suddenly stopped. Join me now as we take a look at the mysterious disappearance of Helen Bailey. You'll hear how the three-month search for a popular author ended with a shocking and terrible discovery that uncovered a killer who'd been brought to justice from beyond the grave. On Sunday, February 27th, 2011, 65-year-old John Sinfield and his wife, 46-year-old Helen Bailey, were soaking up some Caribbean sun on the pristine beaches of Payne's Beach in Barbados. It had been more than four years since the workaholic couple had last taken a vacation. As John headed out to the water for a swim, Helen called back to him, be careful. Just minutes later, the unimaginable happened. Suddenly, Helen spotted John waving and calling for help. He'd been caught in a deadly rip current. Helen watched in horror as beachgoers tried to rescue him, but John went under. Eventually, a jet ski brought John's body to shore, but it was too late. John didn't survive. Helen would later write about the tragedy. A wife at breakfast but a widow by lunch. At the time of her husband's death, Helen was already an accomplished author from the UK. Best known for her Electra Brown book series, she'd earned a reputation for her uncanny ability to use humor and emotionally complex characters to relate to a teenage audience. But after John's passing, she started an online blog called Planet Grief as a way to prove to herself she could still write, even through grief. The blog tackled the subject of bereavement in her signature chatty style of writing. It was open, honest, and raw. Some posts were nothing short of hilarious. In other posts, you can almost hear her tears falling on the keyboard as she typed. But what set Helen's writing apart was that she addressed the small things, the daily struggles, the things no one ever tells you about death until you've experienced it like the crazy amount of paperwork involved, not knowing your spouse's passwords, getting a body moved from Barbados to England, choosing funeral clothes, where to scatter the ashes. Most of all, 
How to handle the infinite reminders in a day of your loss. The blog became a massive success, proving Helen could not only write, maybe even better than ever. Eventually, she turned her blog posts into a successful memoir entitled, When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis. Planet Grief also dealt with other aspects of moving on after the death of a loved one, like dating, and how many bereaved widows tend to keep their new romantic relationships a secret, terrified that moving on might upset family or friends of the deceased, or might even cause jealousy among friends through grief support groups. For Helen, that time came about eight months after John's passing, when she began seeing a man she'd met on a Facebook bereavement group. In the beginning, their connection grew gradually, just friendly conversations while Helen walked her miniature dachshund Boris. But before long, it blossomed into romance. Helen announced the new relationship on her blog, referring to her new love as the gorgeous gray-haired widower. His real name was Ian Stewart, and just like Helen, Ian too had lost a spouse. Ian met his wife Diane at the University of Salford after stealing a chip off her plate in the cafeteria. Practically inseparable ever since, the couple married in 1986 and moved to the village of Basingbourne in Cambridgeshire, England, where they had two sons. 24 years of marriage later, everything seemed to be going well. That is until the morning of June 25th, 2010. Okay, tell me exactly what's happened. My wife's had a fear. I think she's she's she's, oh, she's in the garden. She's okay, in the garden. right. You need to slow down, okay? Because you, you. she's uh, she's 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 in the garden. She's she's unconscious. The operator asked Ian to check his wife's vital signs. Is she breathing? I don't think so. I've tried. I've turned her to try and put in recovery position, but I can't do it. She's she's just flopped back. I think she's had a fit. You think she's had a fit? Well, I think so. She does have epilepsy. Diane had long suffered from epilepsy, but for the past two decades, it had been managed through medication. Okay, she had more than one fit in a row. She hasn't had a fit for a long, long time, about 20 years. Has she had more than one fit in a row? When, today? Yes. No, I wasn't there when it happened. I just found her. I don't know. Is she pregnant? No. Is she diabetic? No. Is she an epileptic or ever had a fit before? Yes, 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 yes. She's on. Has the twitching stopped yet? Yes, she's not. She's not moving at all. She's not moving at all. Okay. Is she breathing at the moment? I don't. As I said, I don't think so. But I, I don't know. She's fluffing at the nose. Throughout the call, Ian was understandably frustrated, and at one point offered to get a doctor who lived across the street. Right, okay, just bear with me a moment. Uh, can I, I, there's a doctor who's opposite, can I go and get him? No, just bear with me a moment. Several times during the call, the operator asked Ian to stop talking and to listen to her instructions. Push down firmly two inches with only the heel of your lower hand touching the chest. Yeah. Now listen carefully. You need to pump the chest hard and fast at least twice per second. We're going to do this 600 times or until help can take over. For 18 minutes, Ian was instructed to perform CPR until paramedics arrived. But despite their best efforts, Diane was pronounced dead. A husband at breakfast, a widower by lunch. Sudep, 
or sudden unexpected death in epilepsy was given as Diane's official cause of death. Ian and his sons, who were teens at the time, dealt with all the post-death minutiae that Helen Bailey would later become famous for addressing in her blog. The impossible amount of paperwork, navigating life insurance, banking, and Ian's new role as a single parent. After Diane's death, Ian inherited 96,000 pounds, but because he didn't file the correct probate paperwork, he missed out on receiving an additional 55,000 pounds he was entitled to. Like many bereaved, Ian's actions were scrutinized by friends and family, especially after he bought a red MG sports car and began dating what others considered as too soon in the months following the tragedy. Although Diane's death was determined to be caused by SUDEP, her sister Wendy just didn't believe it. To her, it didn't make sense. 18 years without a single episode, and then suddenly it kills her out of the blue. To Wendy, the whole thing seemed so odd, she even called the coroner to voice her concerns. Before being cremated, Diane's long-known wish of having her organs donated to science was carried out. And after filling out even more paperwork, Ian consented to have his wife's brain stored in a research hospital. Eventually, Ian joined a support group on Facebook where he met Helen. Ian and Helen were widow and widower, bonded together by loss, grief, and hope for the future. Eventually, friendship turned into romance, and soon romance led to new beginnings. And in 2013, Helen Ian and his two sons moved into a country manor together in Royston. After getting settled, Helen continued writing, healing, and reinventing herself through her blog. Ian, on the other hand, didn't work at all. In fact, he hadn't worked in nearly 20 years. Diagnosed with myosthemia gravis, a semi-rare neuromuscular disease, he kept himself busy with low-impact hobbies and DIY projects, starting every day, making Helen her favorite for breakfast, scrambled eggs. In 2015, Helen released her book, When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis, where she made a personal dedication to her gorgeous gray-haired widower. Not long after the release of her book, Ian and Helen were quietly engaged and began planning a wedding for September 2016. But it was a day that would never come. Half oh, shifty, stuck in a house. Hello there. My partner has been missing since Monday and not contacted anyone. Said she was going away. Hasn't gone, ended up where she said she was going. So I, we just decided we should report it. On April 15th, 2016, Ian reported Helen missing. He made the call four days after he'd last seen her. But why had it taken him so long to report his wife's disappearance? She left a note. She said, she said in the note something like, I need space and time alone. I'm going to Broadstairs. Please don't contact me in any way. But in Broadstairs, she's got, we've got a, a cottage down there. But we, people have been down there with neighbours and she hasn't, she's not there. And her phone is just dead. It's not why well, I say dead. It just, it just doesn't ring. It just goes straight to the answer machine. And someone's been to the cottage and... and someone's been there. to the cottage, yeah. Her brother went there. Did it look like anyone had been in there? No, no, no. Someone went in and it doesn't look like anyone's been in there. 
Everyone assumed that wherever Helen had gone, her dog Boris was with her because he was missing as well. And Helen never went anywhere without her beloved dachshund. In fact, she loved her dog so much, she had a photo of him in every room of the house, something Ina complained about in the past. And uh, could you describe her dog for me, if that's all right? It's a miniature dachshund. I mean, it's brown, it's, these, it's, uh, not, it's not white, it's a smooth coat miniature dachshund. So it's pretty self-explanatory. When was the last time you saw her? Monday afternoon before, about, about quarter, to, quarter to three, twenty to three. And did she say anything to you unusual or...? No, nothing before I went out, no. She just asked me to run there and for after I had been to the doctors. Okay. And um, she said nothing to you then? She, that was, was she leaving the premises at that time? No, no, she was. I left her here. Oh, you left her, okay. So you left her about quarter to three or so, and then what time did you return? Oh, must have been probably just before five. I didn't actually really notice. Yes, no problem. And that's when you saw the note? I didn't see it straight away. She put it on the desk. I didn't see it straight away, no. What sort of time did you realise the note had been left? Oh, I, I don't... About quarter past five, something like that. Yeah, so a few minutes later, yeah. Yeah, not very long. No, not very long, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. And was that note a bit of a shock? Were you expecting it at all? No, I wasn't. Well, yes, it was a shock. She had talked about it, but it was still a shock. Throughout the phone call, Ian struggles to remember the basic details about Helen, her eye colour, her birth date and phone number. Does she take any sort of medication that she critically needs, do you know? No, she's, she's not. She Actually, I've been wanting her to go to the doctor because of why, but she won't go to the doctor. The only medicine she takes is what she buys over the internet, things like herbal stuff. Ian tells the operator he'd been trying to get Helen to see a doctor because for months she hadn't been feeling like herself, becoming perpetually exhausted, often falling asleep during the day. Likewise, her memory was also slipping, to the point she'd even accidentally left Boris behind at the beach one day. And uh, is she ever likely to be a victim of any sort of abuse that you know of? No, it's, no she's a very strong person. It's very hard to abuse Helen. Following up on Ian's missing persons report, police began investigating her disappearance, and initially, there wasn't any immediate signs of foul play because according to Ian, Helen had left him a note expressing she needed some time away. There was also the issue of Boris. Wherever she was, Boris had to be with her. Statements from friends and family regarding her positive mental health made the possibility of suicide extremely remote. So where was she? There seemed to be a few clues, at least from Helen's own writing. On several occasions over the years, Helen waxed poetically about wanting to disappear and start over. In one post she wrote, I'd seen a program about people who just vanished to start a new life under a new identity, and bolting appealed to me. She'd also pointed out that the first rule of disappearing is not to announce you intended to. Helen stated she'd always kept an F-off fund hidden away in case she ever decided to drop everything and leave. In other posts she wrote, I was going to leave, put my keys through the letterbox and run away. Others could sort everything out. My husband had disappeared, and so I would. Police had to consider the possibility Helen had simply walked out on her own life, or maybe was just holed up somewhere working on a new book. Ninety years earlier in 1926, 
British author Agatha Christie had done that exact thing, just disappearing out of the blue one day. Then, 11 days later, after more than a thousand police officers scoured the whole of England to find her, they finally did, sitting in a hotel, reading a newspaper, the news about her disappearance on the front page. To this day, the motivation behind her disappearance is unknown, but as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Over the coming weeks, police began noticing some anomalies during their investigation. First, there was the matter of the note Helen had written to say she was leaving. It was gone. Ian thought he must have thrown it away, but there was no way to prove it ever existed. They also discovered something else the day Helen went missing. A monthly standing order or automatic transfer of funds from Helen's personal account into Ian and Helen's joint account was increased from 600 to 4,000 pounds. Ian claimed Helen had made the change herself as they planned to do some home renovations. They also found Helen's last known internet activities were Google searches regarding their possible wedding venue. Hardly the kind of thing someone looking to escape a relationship would be concerned with. Among the venue searches were also repeated searches asking Dr. Google what could possibly be making her feel so tired every day for the past few months. And there was more. On the day of Helen's disappearance, CCTV footage showed Ian at a recycling center throwing away a duvet. He told detectives he'd had an accident on the bedding after a recent bowel procedure. But the piece of evidence that raised the most eyebrows was discovered on April 21st after police checked the Wi-Fi router at Helen's cottage in Broadstairs. What it showed was Helen's phone, which had been switched off since her disappearance, had connected to the Wi-Fi on April 16th, the day after Ian reported her missing. It was also the same day Ian had traveled to Broadstairs to look for Helen. A month after Helen's disappearance, detectives continued searching for leads and clues, but there was still no sign of Helen. Her brother John decided to issue a public appeal for information. I can't believe it's been a month since my sister Helen disappeared. As you can imagine, this has been an extremely difficult time for our family, and as more time passes since she was last seen, the more concerned we become. As you know, there is little information for the police to work on. We are also worried. If anyone has any information concerning my sister, where my sister may be, I would urge you to call the police. Um, I would also ask Helen, Helen, if you see or read this appeal, please let someone know you are okay. I know you had said that you wanted some time and space, and we don't want to intrude on that unless you want us to. We'll do anything you need us to. All we need is for some information that you are okay, even if that comes from someone you know and trust. Please let someone know. Thank you very much. Throughout their search for Helen, police described Ian as being rude, temperamental, uncooperative and dismissive. However, this alone wasn't a red flag. It seemed to be most people's impressions of Ian's day-to-day -day basis, especially to his neighbors who always found him to be unfriendly and awkward. 
One neighbor in particular, Mavis Drake, claimed she could never understand what Helen saw in Ian. But although Ian's demeanor hadn't been enough to set off alarm bells for detectives, something else had, and in very short order, Ian went from what appeared to be a bumbling and grouchy fiancé to their number one suspect. On the same day John gave his public appeal for information regarding Helen's whereabouts, the Arsenal football team sent out an email to season ticket holders, letting them know it was time to renew their tickets. Four days later, Ian ordered the tickets over the phone, paying more than £3,000 using Helen's personal bank account. Later in June, Ian took a previously planned vacation to Spain by himself, not exactly the kind of behavior you'd expect from a man hoping his wife might return any day. One more detail also came to light when a forensic investigator looked at Ian's computer. Not only had the monthly increases from Helen's bank account been made from Ian's computer, it was also evident he tried very hard to erase any traces of having done so. Taken separately, each piece of evidence against Ian had a plausible, even believable explanation. But when investigators looked at the whole picture, all signs pointed directly at Ian Stewart, being the cause behind Helen's disappearance. They just had to figure out why and where Helen was now. On July 11th, police made the bold decision to arrest Ian on suspicion of murder. Although investigators were certain they had their man, they really didn't have a case against him. All the evidence was entirely circumstantial, some of it even simply subjective opinions. All they could really prove was that Ian had treated himself to some of Helen's money, and while accessing her bank account wasn't illegal, a pair of football tickets that Helen would have purchased anyway was hardly a solid motive for murder. £235,000, however, did seem like a motive for murder. It was the amount Ian would get from Helen's life insurance if she were declared deceased. In the UK, without sufficient evidence of death, a person must remain missing for seven years before becoming officially presumed dead. Some insurance companies make exceptions to this rule in certain cases, but at minimum, without a body, the process would take at least several years. So if collecting Helen's life insurance was Ian's endgame, he wasn't just a hungry predator, he was something far more dangerous. He was a patient predator. Investigators knew, from murder charges to stick, they needed to find some solid evidence that Helen was deceased. They needed to find her body. Early on in the investigation, Detectives had performed a preliminary search of Ian and Helen's country manor, but now they were back, and they had carte blanche to turn the place inside out looking for evidence, and that's exactly what they did. Working around the clock with floodlights and a generator, investigators scoured every inch of the massive seven-bedroom home, including even having the home septic tank pumped out. But after three days, they came up with nothing. On Thursday, July 14th, 2016, neighbor Mavis Drake, the one who couldn't understand what Helen saw in Ian, approached police at the crime scene. She had something interesting to tell them. There was a second septic tank on the property, technically a cesspit, 
located beneath the garage. Mavis and the previous owners had a long-standing joke that it would be the perfect place to hide a body. And shockingly, that's exactly what had happened. The next day, after searching the cesspit, they finally found Helen's body, along with her beloved dog, Boris. An autopsy would reveal Helen's cause of death as suffocation, and though there were no physical injuries to indicate there'd been any kind of a struggle, a pillowcase had also been found in the pit with Helen's body, leading detectives to believe Ian had smothered Helen to death with a pillow. But there was a certain implausibility to this theory. Ian's 20-year battle with myasthenia gravis, although he was considered larger than Helen, the question was... Could someone with his condition suffocate a person with a pillow who was fighting for her life? The answer to that question would come from an unlikely source, Helen's hair. Post-mortem examinations revealed the presence of a drug called Zopaclone in Helen's hair, a sleeping pill used to treat insomnia, a drug that Helen didn't have a prescription for, but Ian did. Based on the buildup of the drug in her follicles, they were able to determine that Helen had been consistently dosed with the drug from as early as February 2016, a whole two months before her death. Falling asleep during the day, problems with her memory, forgetting Boris at the beach, suddenly all the physical problems Helen had been googling in the weeks leading up to her death began to make perfect sense. Ian drugged her and then suffocated her when she was unable to fight back. On January 10, 2017, Ian Stewart went to trial and the jury was given an avalanche of devastating evidence to prove he'd murdered Helen out of pure greed and financial incentive. The total capital payout from Helen's death would entitle him to £1,835,000 about 2.5 million US dollars, which included her share of the house in Royston, her cottage in Broadstairs, and the life insurance policy. The silver bullet for the prosecution was the Zopaclone discovered in Helen's hair. It proved Ian was planning Helen's murder for several months at the very least. It also meant whoever killed Helen had to be someone close enough to consistently and continuously drug her. The prosecution's theory was that Ian was secretly feeding ground-up Zopaclone pills to Helen every morning when he made her favorite breakfast, scrambled eggs. However, when Ian took the stand, he claimed Helen was taking the drugs on her own accord, a claim that quickly fell apart under scrutiny. For months, Helen had been openly complaining about how tired she felt. She told friends and family and attempted her own research. It strains credulity to believe Helen could have been so worried about her daily tiredness, but according to Ian, never became suspicious that the powerful prescription sleeping pills might be the cause. But this wasn't the most absurd claim Ian Stewart made on the stand. He also gave a completely new version of events, admitting everything he had previously told police was a lie. What Ian told the court really happened was a far-fetched story about two men named Nick and Joe who kidnapped Helen and then demanded a 500,000-pound ransom. According to Ian, 
The reason he lied to investigators was to protect Helen's life, as well as his two sons who lived with them. On the stand, Ian was in tears explaining how worried he'd been for Helen's life. While his defense lawyer made the argument, only a bumbling fool would do the things Ian was accused of. However, it wasn't the best of reasoning, because a bumbling fool was exactly how Ian came across, especially when the jury listened to the phone call he'd made, reporting Helen missing. And what's the date of birth? Oh, crikey. God, she's found me there. 22nd. Well, just let me double check. One second. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I'm just double checking. It does you ask that. It just went straight out my head. That's no problem. And her eye colour. Oh, I can't, oh, my God. How do you forget these things? <laughs> I don't know at the moment. Sorry. It's just gone I'm out of my head. That's no problem. Oh, God. That's terrible. And can I please take down her contact number if that's okay? Of course it is. I'm going to have to look it up. Alrighty. Would you mind as well if I just take the whole address of the cottage, if that's alright? The whole address of the cottage? Wow. Yeah, you've got it. Righty. I'm not sure if I can give you that. I just go there. Uh, I'm going to have to look that up. I really don't know. I know it's Raglan Place. I can't, I don't know what number it Ultimately, Ian was found guilty and sentenced to a minimum of 34 years in prison which meant he'd be 90 years old before becoming eligible for parole. But that isn't the end of this story. After Ian's conviction, police began wondering if his first wife's unexpected death back in 2010 might not have been so unexpected after all. Naturally, Diane's family was also asking the same question, some never believing she died from epilepsy. On the same day Ian began his long prison sentence, an official investigation was opened into the death of Diane Stewart. But there were obstacles. Because murder wasn't originally suspected, any sort of criminal investigation into Diane's death never took place, which meant the crime scene and potential witnesses' testimony were never thoroughly processed. Furthermore, her body had been cremated, eliminating the possibility of exhumation. Post-mortem records showed she'd been screened for anti-epilepsy medication, but a full toxology test had never been conducted. Without these types of physical evidence, they had very little to go on. But still, the more they investigated, the more guilty Ian began to look. According to Ian's statements, he'd come home from the store to find Diane collapsed in the garden. Instead of dialing 999 immediately, he attempted to perform CPR for 10 minutes before remembering that a doctor and nurse were neighbors across the street. Only after he ran over and discovered no one was home did he finally dial 999, continuing CPR for a further 18 minutes. But there was a problem with this version of events. Let's listen again to Ian's 999 call. Right, okay, just bear with me a moment. Can I, I, there's a doctor who's obsessed. Can I go and get him? No, just bear with me a moment. Why would Ian suggest getting the doctor next door if, in fact, he'd already ran across the street and knew they weren't home? Investigators also spoke to a paramedic who never believed Ian had actually performed CPR while waiting for him to arrive because there weren't any telltale signs any attempts had been made. None of the injuries to her body as would be expected, like cracked ribs. There were also none of the expected injuries that an epilepsy death might cause. No biting of the tongue, 
and no wounds on her body indicated she'd fallen down during an epileptic fit. But again, all of this evidence was speculative. There had to be something more. They were certain Ian had made a crucial mistake while covering his tracks. They just needed to find it. As it turned out, Ian's big mistake was something he'd done deliberately to avoid suspicion. Something he never expected would come back to haunt him. In the wake of Diane's death, he'd decided to cremate her body to get rid of the evidence. But he also knew that if he refused to grant consent to her well-known wishes of having her organs donated, people might become suspicious. Miraculously, investigators were able to track down Diane Stewart's brain, still being preserved in a brain bank inside a research hospital. Brain tissue is typically used to research neurological conditions and medications. However, police approached the hospital with a different request. A request believed to be the first of its kind in UK history. They needed to examine a donated brain to solve a murder. What the neuropathologist who examined the brain soon discovered was as shocking as it was horrible. By looking at the ischemic changes that occurred in Diane's brain, he could rule out the possibility of any sudden form of death like SUDEP, which was the original conclusion. Instead, he determined Diane had suffocated over an extended period of 35 to 60 minutes. Suffocation, the exact same M.O. he'd used to murder Helen Bailey. In 2018, police charged Ian with the murder of Diane Stewart. I'm arresting you on suspicion of the murder of your late wife, Diane You're joking. Stewart. Have you got nothing better to do than make We can up? discuss this at Thoughtwood Police Station. On January 17, 2022, Ian's trial for the murder of Diane began at St. Albans Crown Court. Over the course of three weeks, the jury was presented with a slew of overwhelming evidence confirming that she had, in fact, been murdered by her husband. Although Ian continued to maintain his innocence, it took less than two days to deliberate for the jury to find him guilty. On February 9th, 2022, the judge gave Ian a whole life sentence, an extreme rarity in the UK, so rare in fact that less than 100 prisoners have ever received one. In his sentencing remarks, the judge stated, it was just punishment for your callous and chilling murder of two separate women who had the misfortune to be in an intimate relationship with you. Now that we know the truth about Diane's murder, if we look back at the beginning of Helen and Ian's relationship, it seems all the more sick, sinister, and twisted. Helen's gorgeous gray-haired widower was, it seems, stalking bereavement support groups online for a victim. He presented himself as a grieving widower, knowing full well he hadn't lost his wife, he'd murdered her. Through the support groups, Ian preyed on widows, women living through the most vulnerable, painful days of their lives. But Ian wasn't just a predator. He was a patient predator. He carefully selected his victims, and there can be little doubt that as Ian took those first walks with Helen and Boris, he was already dreaming about her money. Not long after Diane's death, Helen Bailey became an inspiration for people all over the world. 
experiencing the same feelings of grief and loss. And after Helen's murder, the grieving process began for her loved ones as well. The terrible irony for their family is that the best person to help them through their bereavement would have been Helen herself. But while we no longer have Helen Bailey's physical form on this earth, we still have the wisdom of her words that provide comfort, strength, and hope. In the intro to her memoir, Helen wrote, When our world is ripped apart, we still have to start again from scratch. Think of it as learning to ride a bike, a bike with a bent frame, flat tires, and dodgy brakes across unfamiliar and stony ground. Good friends, perhaps family, and those who know firsthand the pain of bereavement will be beside you, picking you up when you fall. One day you'll realize that you're pedaling on your own. You'll look back and see a crowd waving and cheering as you speed off into the distance. The bike will never be perfect, but it will get you to where you need to go. This is the story of my learning to ride that broken bike. If I can do it, so can you. I promise you. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.